Welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 2, Episode 10, The Unresolved Mystery of Michelle O'Connell's Death, Part 3. At this time, let's examine the 911 call placed by Deputy Banks in regards to the death of Michelle O'Connell. We will be using a tool developed to determine if a person is deceptive by what they say. Mark McClish a retired Supervisor Deputy United States Marshal with 26 years of federal law enforcement experience, developed the program and training. From 1991 to 1999, he taught interviewing techniques at the U.S. Marshal Service Training Academy, which is located at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. During his nine years teaching at the Training Academy, he conducted research on deceptive language. Based on his findings, he developed a technique to determine if a person is lying or telling the truth by analyzing the subject's language. According to Mark McClish, his program is the most accurate way of determining if a person is lying in a verbal or written statement. A person cannot give a lengthy, deceptive statement without revealing that it is a lie. This is because people's words will betray them. There are usually several ways you can phrase a statement. People will always word their statement based on all their knowledge. Therefore, their statement may contain information they do not intend to share. Even though people may want to withhold information, they will give us more information than what they realize. Unfortunately, they sometimes give us more information than what we realize. The key is to listen to what people are telling you and to know what to look for in a statement. Peter Hyatt is an analyst, instructor, and author of Deception Detective manuals and books for law enforcement, and he provides a detailed overview of the 911 call using this program. The call begins with, Hey! which is a greeting. We do not expect politeness in any form in an emergency as one finding his girlfriend bleeding to death. Urgency is expected. Please now consider the topic of urgency. In any emergency like this one, urgency is presupposed. What do we look for? We look for urgency versus the appearance of urgency in the call. Consider that this is a deputy calling. This means he knows precisely how 911 and the system works. While he is on the phone, dispatch begins. This is an example of scripted and feigned urgency as he repeats the call for help. Yet, he never asks for help for the victim. In fact, he says, get someone. Not anyone specific to come, but already one we do not expect the emergency call to begin with a greeting. Two, we do not expect to hear politeness. Three, we do not expect the caller to ask for help for the victim, or in the case of CPR, help for himself, including how to stop the blood. Even those trained under emergency settings still may require guidance should the training give way to emotion. Please is repeated here. The need to manipulate or align himself with the good guys, that is, with authorities, is evident. 
It is one single mistake made by the dispatch that reveals great insight into Jeremy Banks' personality. We know that he does not ask for help for her. We have his third use of the polite please, as if he does not know that dispatch has already taken place. We then come to a critical place in the call where the victim is now introduced for the first time. This is vital in our understanding. Who is Michelle O'Connell? This question is not for us to answer, but the subject himself. Who is Michelle O'Connell to the caller? We begin with Statement Analysis 101, The Social Introduction. As this is an emergency call, we have already expected him to have identified why rescue, not someone, is needed. He did not, but gave the address along with his politeness and his greeting. He took the time to say, please, twice, but not to report that Michelle was bleeding. He reports that his girlfriend may have shot herself. He does not report that his girlfriend is bleeding. He does not report that he has his hands on the wound to stop the blood flow. He only identifies her as she relates to him. This incomplete social introduction is an indicative that this is a point in the statement the relationship is not so good. This is the essence of teaching of social introductions. We learn the quality of the relationship in the statement, in the verbalization perception of reality from the subject's unique point of view. This is to tell us he has not asked for help for her and that there is a problem in their relationship. While she lays bleeding and he speaks to authorities, context is key. That he has not asked for help for her is noted or red flagged. Why? Because those who have committed the crime may not want help for the victims, but for themselves. If she lives, she may be able to tell authorities what actually happened. Psychologically, he is telling us that while Michelle lay bleeding to death, he does not want to use her name, nor for her to receive help as this might impact him. Next, he must report what happened. 1. He only thinks she shot herself. 2. Passivity employed regarding the blood. He gives a weak assertion that she may have shot herself. To use the word think here, he expresses a weak commitment to what actually happened. It is a guess at best. This indicates that he either does not know if she shot herself, or that he does not want to be identified as knowing that he, she shot herself. This is then connected to, there is blood everywhere. This is a passive voice. Passivity indicates a desire to conceal, and this concealment is often responsibility. There is blood everywhere does not tell us whose blood it is, who caused it. In less than a millisecond of time, he chose wording that would conceal responsibility for the shooting, 
while again psychologically distancing himself from her while she lay bleeding out. What could he have said? Michelle is bleeding from. And what he is doing to help it. The use of passivity means he does not want it known whose blood is everywhere because blood does not just end up everywhere. It must be caused by someone and something. This use of passivity does not sound right to the dispatch. With or without proper statement analysis training, the person is going to recognize how awkward things sound, not hearing her name as well as the passive voice. Hence, the question is asked for the purpose of clarification. This ended up working out for those interested in the truth. Here, he plainly reports the change. She shot herself. A. She is not Michelle. He again avoids using her name. B. She shot herself. No longer is qualified by him thinking which reveals that he initially was not truthful when he said the additional words, think. For those who would defend him based on upon excited utterance, the same defense is the same that convicts him. It takes more effort to add a word in than it does to leave it out. It's the law of economy. By forcing him to repeat what happened, he goes to the shortest root of the language, dropping the qualifier. This is where deception indicated becomes strengthened. We also have him making an effort with two or more uses of the polite please that is used to appear to be begging. This need to appear to be urgent is undermined by his use of both passivity and of psychological distancing language, including his avoidance of saying her name. The next statement gives us insight into the negative relationship that has already been discerned by the incomplete social introduction, distancing language, and passivity. This is critical. Whereas most would not care to correct but to seek guidance on how to stop blood flow, he uses this opportunity, instead of helping Michelle, to correct the 911 operator. He not only corrects 911, he uses two different words to do so. First, he uses Mr. as to identify gender, but the language undergoes a serious change. Remember the context. Not only has he not asked for help, nor guidance in stopping the blood flow, but he has a need for respect while she lay there bleeding to death. He makes certain she knows it is not only a male that 911 is talking to, but he will be addressed by the word sir. As we consider that he does not ask for help, nor does he address the blood flow or first aid techniques, he has already revealed a problem in their relationship. Now he shows more concern that he himself be respected than Michelle, whose name he will not utter, lay bleeding out on the floor. This is to provide insight, and due to extremity of this situation, respecting him is a priority far above that of Michelle's emergency and need for help. 
With a loved one bleeding to death, one is not likely to care to correct the error, but to address the first aid need to stop the blood flow. Hang on. Uh, listen, let me tell you the truth. I'll get you back to the Sidhouse County Sheriff's Office. I, I work with y'all. Get someone here now. This provides insight into his psyche. He is Deputy Banks, and you better address him as Sir, as he now takes authority. Yet a single word here, truth, tells us precisely what he wanted to withhold, his own identity. He introduces himself by saying, let me tell you the truth. This indicates that the truth of this case involves him on a professional level. Not only did he not ask for help for her, nor offer help for her, and that he distanced himself from her, her status, one of bleeding to death, is directly related to his job. This tells us to carefully go back and review the need for passivity in speech to conceal responsibility. Deputy Banks has the need to conceal who caused the blood of Michelle O'Connell to be found everywhere. He does not ask for help for her because he does not want her to receive help. He has now admitted that he has not told the truth. But you will call me sir, for I am Deputy Banks, and I have not told you the truth before, but now I will reveal it. When coupled with passivity and speech, we have a connection between him as a professional, armed, and her blood. This is his connection, in which he attempts to conceal with his scripted please, please, times five, as he continues to demand what he already knows is happening, yet his brain in choosing what words to speak will not allow him to say why someone should come to his house. He does not ask for help for the victim. He has told us that this is a bad relationship and that he has a powerful need to be respected or else. This is likely what Michelle O'Connell lived under. Okay, I need you to calm down then. I know how it goes. What's the address? I don't 4700 Sherlock Place. Okay, what's going on there? Dispatch has a need to ask this because he gave conflicting accounts. First, he feigned that he did not know, and then he told that he did know and introduced the word truth, all while avoiding both her name and the request for assistance. He did not ask for help for himself in administering aid to stop the flow of blood, nor has he expressed any concern for her. Yet, while showing no concern for her, he makes quite certain that he gets the respect his office demands. There are likely those who will attest to this personality both in the department and in the public, including those who may have been stopped by him in traffic. We all give ourselves away in language. Here, we are hearing not only deception, but classic insecurity and control is indicative of precisely what the language of incomplete social introduction and distancing show, domestic violence. Here is another critical point. 
He already has admitted knowing that she shot herself, but now rather than show concern for how he may assist her, the call continues about Jeremy Banks himself. This sentence reveals the ownership of the weapon as if this matters. It does not matter to an innocent caller who owns the weapon. Instead, the innocent caller wants the victim saved. He has not addressed any urgent need for the victim, but has the need to, now that he is telling the truth, identify the ownership of the gun. The scripting of pleas, time seven now, continues. Well, he avoids using the victim's name, only relating to her how she relates to him. We have his girlfriend and his weapon. That he called it his weapon warrants further exploration into his cultural use of the phrase. However, the pronoun my tells us of his priority. Do you know Michelle's condition? Do you know where her blood is leaving her body? Do you know if she's breathing? Do you know if he has done anything to stop the blood flowing? We know none of these, but we do know who owns the weapon. We also know something else. Timing. Has just. Consider how close this comes to a confession. If he said, My girlfriend just shot herself, it would indicate that he was deceptive when he said think previously. This deception is affirmed, but the incomplete past tense use here tells us much more information than meets the eye. He did not say, my girlfriend just shot herself, which the word just would indicate something close to the present time that is quite sudden or just before the call. Instead, he used has just, which is an imperfect past tense usage. My girlfriend has just shot herself, even though his point of admission is ownership of the gun, the use of has just indicates a passing of time. He took it from sudden pass to a spread out past time. This tells us in less than millisecond of time that his brain chose this word for the tongue that time elapsed longer than he wished to let on of which he was eyewitness. Now, why would he do this? Because he is thinking of what happened before she shot herself. He's thinking of the time period that he was present, where something happened that he does not want the 911 operator to know. He is withholding critical information. Something happened in direct relationship to her shooting herself that Jeremy Banks is withholding. It is in this period of time that there may have been a brutal fight, assault, or something else that is directly related to her death. If it is true that he broke her jaw, this is when it happened. Nine one one properly addresses him as sir and reminds him of what he already knows. They are in transit. Since he has offered nothing about her, but lots about himself, he now must be asked about her current condition. Is Michelle breathing? No, there's blood coming out of everywhere, please. He answered the question, used his please again, just number eight, and avoided her name. 
while going back to the passive voice about blood. Now it is coming out of everywhere. This is a voice telling us the source of the blood, while we continue to wait for him to say that he is trying to stop the blood flow. Um, I mean, he's not very called dispatch on tattoo kids in here now. I... He has gotten through the worst of revealing who he is and has employed deception to avoid telling what happened in its entirety, and has regained his authority over dispatch. This is affirmed by the sudden disappearance of pleas, as he no longer feels the psychological burden to ingratiate himself. He is being labeled sir, and he has been restored to his place of authority. This is a dangerous man. As to this regaining of confidence, it is quickly lost when a single word from the operator reverses the roles. He is told what the police need him to do. This puts him back into a subordinate role as a police need or direct him to do something. This brings back the script. Please, 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 please. Okay. 911 now calls him Jeremy and implores him to calm down. He gave them no information on how to be asked about her breathing. As he continues this subordinate position, he implores the operator to understand what he has repeated. This is to show that he has a decent intellect. He understands the point that he has made poorly, including, I think, my girlfriend shot herself, which then nullifies, my girlfriend has just shot herself, as an outright lie. Jeremy Banks is the one in need. He needs to be understood. He needs to be justified. He gave no detail about her condition, yet pleads for that which he already knows is underway. And he needs personal respect. He is more concerned about himself and the ownership of the gun than the victim of whom he did not ask any help for. He did not offer up her condition, nor how he would remedy her condition through first aid. The conclusion here is Jeremy Banks indicates deception via withholding information and the interview will be, have to be combative in nature if it hopes to obtain an admission or more likely enough inconsistencies for a conviction. He is not likely to admit much, but investigators will have to focus on interrogation skills using blunt language and forensics, but especially the tool of his own language, need for respect, and his need for control. They must exploit his need for respect while putting him into a subordinate role by using his words as well as the evidence. He will feel shamed in reading or hearing his own words and how they betrayed him. His anger could provoke him into an admission, or at the very least, to revealing information just as we saw when the 911 operator referred to him as a female. Collateral interviews should confirm or suggest confirmation about the relationship, as well as acute need for respect. The language here is consistent with domestic violence. If the exhuming of her body has revealed a broken jaw, it is likely that this is what Mr. Banks had in mind when he used an imperfect past tense. This is likely 
where the dispute escalated. Jeremy Banks is deliberately withholding information about what had happened. Please know that Jeremy Banks has been cleared by investigators and is judicially innocent. When one speaks, there is an expectation that the audience will believe or disbelieve the subject and they retain the right to personal opinion. If you are interested in this statement analysis training for your department or your business, I would suggest visiting HyattAnalysis.com for seminars, courses, ongoing training, and also support. With officials doing little, in 2016, the O'Connell family arranged for an exhumation of Michelle's body in conjunction with a second autopsy to be performed by Dr. Bill Anderson. According to Dr. Anderson, when the gun was fired, Michelle's tongue positioning would have almost gagged or suffocated her. This was consistent with someone else forcing a gun into her mouth rather than her placing it there. Dr. Anderson also found a fracture in Michelle's jaw. Coupled with lacerations on her lip and eye, he postulated that Michelle was struck multiple times prior to being shot. As a result, he determined her manner of death was homicide. During the initial investigation, investigators determined it could not have been a homicide because someone just doesn't open their mouth and let someone put a gun into it and shoot. True. But with lacerations on her lip, an eye, and a broken jaw, an expert testimony of Dr. Anderson that she was struck multiple times before being shot and that she would have voluntarily gagged on the weapon, Michelle could have involuntarily opened her mouth while unconscious, making zero resistance for a perpetrator to fire the fatal shot. But what about that other shot? The first shot, or second shot? Did Michelle just randomly shoot the carpet, missing her head point-blank in a first attempt at suicide? Or was the gun placed into Michelle's hand and fired after she had been deceased, thus transferring DNA and allowing gunshot residue to be present on her hand? The bullet lodged in the carpet is extremely interesting, as suicide victims usually don't shoot at themselves twice. Sheriff Schwar stated, We know it's a suicide. However, the evidence is far from definitive. The FDLE investigation concluded it was more likely a homicide than a suicide, but the evidence and witnesses gathered were largely ignored. Prosecutors who reviewed the case have concluded there was not enough evidence to prosecute. Dominic Pape, the head of the state law enforcement agency in Jacksonville office, was so unhappy that he called for a special inquest. According to a five-page memo from Mr. King's office, the decision had been based primarily on the pathologist's findings. Three medical examiners have reviewed the file and concluded that this was a suicide, it states. To Mr. Pate, their conclusions, particularly Dr. Bulick's upside-down gun theory, were confusing and unpersuasive. Dr. Hoban, the original pathologist, would ultimately change his findings three times. After saying it was suicide and then homicide, 
He told a local reporter he did not know what happened before telling the New York Times that he again believed eh, it was a suicide. Mr. King had also asked a former medical examiner in his district, Dr. Stephen Cogswell, to review the case. As a military pathologist in the mid-1990s, Dr. Cogswell had been criticized for concluding that Commerce Secretary Ron Brown had been shot in the head before his plane crashed in Croatia, killing all aboard. Air Force officials categorically rejected his findings. Asked about the Connell case in an interview, Dr. Cogswell said he could not recall it in detail. Mr. Pape also complained that Dr. Bulick and Dr. Cogswell had not written reports explaining their decisions. Dr. Bulick said he had not done so because the case was actually not his, it was Dr. Hoban's. He said he had looked into the case, quote, out of my pure curiosity and to satisfy the many different people who came and asked about my opinion. As for Dr. Cogswell, Mr. King said, I simply was not willing to spend another $5,000 of taxpayers' money to get another written report to say it's suicide. The crime scene reconstructionist hired by the state agency, Jerry Findlay, also took issue with the special prosecutor. When Mr. King's investigators came to talk to him, Mr. Findlay said, quote, The whole tone of the interview was for me to tailor my report or soften my report to where it would be more conducive to suicide rather than homicide. In the end, Mr. King rejected the call for an inquest. Sheriff Shuar greeted the decision with gushing praise for Mr. King's two investigators, Bill Gladson and John Tilly. In a letter to Mr. King, the sheriff described them as class acts on top of their game. A year later, when the case still would not go away, and now national interest was present, the sheriff began a new inquiry into how the state agency had investigated the shooting and their office. Sheriff Shore released a report that accused Mr. Rogers of hyping his case against Mr. Banks, coaching witnesses, and using false information to get a search warrant. The report given to the news media and law enforcement officials also accused Mr. Pape of failing to rein in his agent. Sheriff Shore also paid two former law enforcement officers, one of them an acquaintance, to review his report, and both agreed that Mr. Rogers' investigation had been flawed. The sheriff's report, filled with opinion and sometimes factually inaccurate information, also sought to discredit the testimony of Mr. Banks's two neighbors, who had given sworn statements about hearing a woman screaming for help. One of them, Stacy Boswell, said in an interview that Mr. Rogers had never sought to influence their testimony. He just asked us what we seen and what we heard that night. In his report, Sheriff Shore did finally acknowledge, briefly, his department's failure to canvas neighbors, interview the O'Connells, download Mr. Banks' cell phone data, isolate and photograph Mr. Banks, collect all his clothing, send the evidence in for testing, interview the paramedics, write a crime scene log, and file the proper reports. The sheriff also questioned the decision to assign two relatively inexperienced detectives to such a sensitive case. But he determined that the investigation was positive and that indeed they had done nothing wrong. It is interesting to note 
that just two months after the shooting, one of those detectives, Mr. Tolbert, was reprimanded for sexually harassing a female officer. And there have been other incidents within the Department of domestic and spousal abuse, but usually these were all kept private. More recently, the Florida Medical Examiner's Commission panel found that the St. John's County Chief Medical Examiner, Dr. Predrag Bulek, and Medical Examiner, Dr. Frederick Hoban, may have violated multiple policies. Most significantly, the panel alleged the doctor's initial autopsy reports failed to document Michelle had broken her lower jaw, which Michelle's family has maintained is evidence that she was abused and killed. This new information is still ignored by law enforcement, and just this year, Jeremy Banks filed a lawsuit against the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and Agent Rogers. Attorneys for St. John's County Sheriff's Deputy Jeremy Banks filed a motion in a federal court in Jacksonville claiming Florida Department of Law Enforcement Agent Rusty Rogers destroyed his credibility and asking that his defenses and pleadings be thrown out in an ongoing civil rights and malicious prosecution suit brought against the embattled agent. According to a news release, attorney Mac McLeod, representing Banks, seeks to stop the proceeding with determining any damages awardable to Banks, who has endured years of false allegations. He was responsible for his girlfriend's death, which was ruled a suicide by three separate medical examiners and two state attorneys. And former St. John's County Deputy Scott O'Connell, Michelle's brother, also filed the civil lawsuit of his own against Agent Rogers. Rogers was suspended without pay throughout the three-year investigation by FDLE, which came at the request of St. John's County Sheriff David Schwar. It was reported at the time of Rogers' reinstatement that he had received counseling and would receive remedial training regarding procedures for documenting investigative reports. However, in the court of law, more than three years after state prosecutors were ordered by the governor to investigate FDLE agent Rusty Rogers for alleged misconduct, investigators found no criminal conduct on his part. All charges were dropped. All civil suits ceased. At least, Agent Rusty Rogers was vindicated. But the case still, to this day, remains unresolved. Evidence is still, to this day, being ignored. Even when the FDLE requested a review of the evidence, they found that the sheriff's office was not cooperating fully. For example, Sergeant Ron Faircloth simply refused to hand over the shell casings to the FDLE for examination. And yet, through all of this bullshit, the family is still standing strong and maintaining that Jeremy Banks did in fact murder Michelle. And they believe one day they will be able to prove it. Michelle's daughter, Alexis, now aged 11, is still coping with the loss of her mother. Sheriff Schwar still maintains his position in the community. Jeremy Banks maintains his innocence and remains a sheriff's deputy. The death of Michelle O'Connell still remains unresolved.
Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Cupelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.